I think it's confession time, Simo. Somebody, not a million miles from here, has been a bad boy, haven't they? Me? I have been what? Is this what I think it is? You? That wasn't me. You duped lots of nice ladies and gentlemen into thinking Prime Video, no less, had signed you up to be a reality TV star. That wasn't me. It was you. And, you know, if anyone is listening from Prime, then obviously we've clearly duped enough people between us that uh, it sounds like a great idea. This cast of otherwise brilliant and intelligent business people from across numerous sectors (laughs) went on LinkedIn and fell for our, all all right, all right, my April 4. Yeah, that's the one. Well, yeah, but it's been interesting to get their feedback, actually, JP. And, uh, you know, there's been plenty of friends, in fact, friends of the show, even, (laughs) that uh, I've seen recently. They did think it was genuine. Yeah, and to all our connections and friends, I'm so sorry that I, all right, I broke the bond of trust. But it was was in the spirit of April Fool's Day, so there you go. And it was pre-12 noon, just... The Right Move, the property podcast with Andrew Simmons and JP. You are with the podcast that knows all about property, investing, selling, buying, technical issues, planning the whole shebang, the whole enchilada. And um, this is chock full of stuff this time, isn't it, Simo? Yeah, well, we always try and get as much crammed into our uh, monthly editions as we can. And uh, yeah, we've got a, a hot few lineups today. We've got uh, a uh, consultant property lawyer, no less, and uh, part of the team within a buying agent business. So uh, we'll be having some real insight into the conveyancing process. Yeah, so she can uh, really further educate that view on you know the whole uh, series of transactions in a more uh, helpful way. And she's also here to tell her story. Now, Andrew, when Charlie Landon says, of all the indices, you know he's educated, so just by the fact he says indices, of all the indices, it's my favourite. You know it must be good. This is the RICS, the RICS UK Residential Market Survey. And he's going to run the rule over it, and so are you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as uh, I went to see Charlie oh, about a week ago, and uh, Charlie and I sat down and did one of his famous completely raw videos of you know having a chat about certain things and we decided we needed to talk about the RICS market survey sadly charlie left the mic on mute something we have not failed to do this evening on recording this podcast but it was okay because we decided that it was appropriate to drown our sorrows we went to the pig uh, in honiton had a nice time so thank you charlie once again for your hospitality sorry that my uh well, it, it, I say sorry. It wasn't my fault. No, I will no. Name uh, somewhere else. But sorry that the audio failed us. Well, look, as we've already proven right at the start, nothing is ever your fault, Simo. How could no. it possibly, possibly be your fault? Now, I like that. A, a, a blank piece. That's that's what I call economy of words. Uh, and and the last thing we need to uh, to, to flag up is that uh, within the episode. We're going to have a look at a, I guess it's a, a business story to do with property. And it just, how can I put this really without sort of giving the game away at this stage? It illustrates how what looks to be a very, a very ailing business can still be looking to not just consolidate, but grow pretty massively. Yeah, it's quite a scary proposition, really, when you, when you look at it that way. 
Um, and, you know, these, so, so we're talking two fairly, fairly household names here that, what well, definitely is, but, you know, two, two big players who are clearly both failing in their financials. But, yeah, let's, like you say, let's have a chat about that a bit later on. Selling, buying, investing. Are you making the right move? Now, how often do you hear gripes about the conveyancing process? Seemingly the whole thing held up uh, on a sale because of some question on this or the other. Maybe uh, one of the parties seemed to be pedantic. But is it as straightforward as that? Do we do a disservice to the sector? Now, Claire, who is our guest this episode, we're about to talk to, has this vast experience in the legal side of property, both here and in Australia, which is really interesting. And there's some incredibly useful things, I think, Simo, that come out of this conversation. Definitely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, really, where, where you say, well, you know, who's, re- who's to blame mm. within transactions? You know, it, it could be a simple case of, you know, one party hasn't returned forms to the conveyancer. Conveyancer, yes, they can be pedantic, but they're at the end of the day, they are protecting their client. You the vendor or buyer. Now, a property transaction, of course, is a non-contentious transaction. And it's one that most people with experience understand that you're just really trying to get everything over the line to protect you as either a buyer or or, or, or a seller. And uh, that's where conveyances really do earn, earn their crust. And good ones at that, you know, I, I was talking to Charlie as well um, about conveyances and he has a conveyancer that he uses himself and is very very um impressed and has ever, forever and a day used this conveyancer but he you know a conveyancer may be so good that they then they charge a lot and they only have a select few clients yeah so you know that makes them good and i see good conveyances and i say see absolutely terrible conveyances in my job and it's so important to be able to work and trust with convincing solicitors as an agent, but equally as a vendor or, or a purchaser. So yes, they can be pedantic. You're absolutely right. Um, but they are only protecting yeah. your interests in both sides, but they can get the blame for a lot of holdups. But actually, most of the time, the holdups are because somebody hasn't returned some forms or this and the other. The worst, JP, the absolute hits of conveyancing are online or call center conveyances you must 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 if you take some advice away from this podcast it is you must absolutely use a local firm wherever you might be so that you can walk into their office i mean you know nine times out of ten they do work from an office as opposed to remote working but you know you must be able to go in and see them and have have that conversation um and and realize that you know, agents as well will recommend uh, conveyances, not because they're going to get a backhander or a fee and introduce a fee or anything like that for it. Agents will introduce to conveyances for on the basis that they know they can do a good job for their clients. Yeah. So I do that very much the same. I, I, I introduce people to conveyances and I don't take any well, there is one that insists on paying a referral fee. And I'm very open about that, you know, when I when I talk to people. Um, but nine times out of ten, good conveyances won't won't pay referral fees. They won't, you know, they won't have any of that. So the agent isn't benefiting from that. So take the agent's advice and use somebody who is local. Generally, and I'll say this slightly quietly: mm-hmm. don't use don't use an in-house conveyancer as well that is attached to the 
estate agent, yeah. even the estate agent, well, the estate agent might tell you that that's because it will make it slicker. Well, mm -hmm. not always. You can't fail to be impressed uh, at Claire. Actually, very candid in this conversation we're about to play and, you know, n no punches pulled. And okay, probably wrongly, I think you think of people in any sort of legal in the legal sector, legal world is being maybe a bit kind of starchy and buttoned up, not Claire. She really is not afraid to tell it uh, how it is. Should we get her on, Simo? Yeah, let's do that, JP. Claire Russell Arto, consultant property lawyer. So I uh, was admitted to the Supreme Court of New South Wales in 2006 and uh, sort of immediately embarked upon a career in commercial property. Well, fell into a career in commercial property is probably more the uh, more accurate. And there I sort of stayed for, for a little while. Um, and then I, I changed firms and I sort of diversed a little bit into some charity and not-for-profit law alongside property, um, which, was, which was very, very interesting. So I was actually in Australia. I am um, originally from Bristol and I thought it was time to return back home. So I actually ended up in London. And there I worked, uh, I found myself a little commercial property job in this tiny, uh, sort of one-man band firm in, the, in, in Mayfair in the West End. Um, and from there, I went into some of the larger law firms um, and did a lot of plot sales work, which frankly was horrendous. It was, when you got to sort of go, go to Asia for exhibition, that, that, that was fine. It was hard work, but it was always a, it was always a good laugh. But plot sales, uh, solicitors and, and conveyances who deal with that, you know, good for them. It, it's it's relentless. You, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of matches on the go at once. So I kind of burnt out a little bit, John, to be honest with you. I sort of had enough. Um, and so my husband and I set up a buying agency and we were still in London. And uh, we we then relocated down to Bristol. We thought we'd had enough of, uh, of London. We wanted to sort of step back a little bit, bit, bit of a quieter city. And um, so we, we built that up here. And what happened was I found that because our clients were, you know, knew I was a solicitor, and that was a little bit of our USP as well, because, you know, being a solicitor, I would look at houses with the potential buyers and walk around and ask questions um, that perhaps a buying agent without any legal background wouldn't think necessarily to ask. And so clients were asking if I could do their conveyancing because they were familiar with me and comfortable with me. And I, I resisted for a while. And then I thought, well, why not? COVID sort of opened things up for sort of homeworking and consultancy in, in the legal sphere. So I thought, well, okay, let's look into this. Um, I had no interest in going into a firm and sitting at a desk all day. I set myself up as um, I'm self-employed. That's what uh, consultants listers are. I, so I work under the umbrella of Taylor Rose. Uh, I think it's a top 50, top 60 law firm in the country. And I have to uh, bring it up, Claire, because you mentioned Australia. You kicked off talking about New South Wales. Can we learn things in this country, do you think, from any of the Aussie ways of doing things around property law, the whole experience around property? Are we behind ahead or about the same, do you think? It's interesting, actually, because so in Australia, firstly, each state has its own system of, of conveyancing and property law. It's um, so so that's one thing. So I I worked in New South Wales, so Sydney, and I think both systems have their pros and cons. Back in the day, and I'm not sure whether they still do it over there, but 
in New South Wales, when you, you came to completion, you used that it was all done by check. And this is not, this is only like in the last, this is maybe sort of like 10 years ago or something. And you used to have to go to settlement rooms and meet the bank and the other solicitor there and call out your client's name, which is all quite exciting, actually. It was quite fun. <laughs> so they, they were actually a little bit behind us in terms of getting um, a lot of the sort of online or electronic conveyancing going. But they do have, there's no chains uh, over there, which when you have transactions wobbling here and you, you, you mentioned that to, to clients, uh, they, they think that that's marvellous. But the flip side of that, of course, is that there's a, a standard 42-day completion period between exchange and completion. And you've got to be out, unless you agree otherwise. But typically, there's a lot of sort of like going into rental or you have to arrange your own sort of um, unofficial chain, but that's not something that solicitors deal with. So we, we, we knock the chain system quite a lot, but when you start thinking of alternatives, you, you know, what actually is there? The other thing I think they actually do do better is before a property, residential property can be marketed by an estate agent, the seller has to appoint a solicitor and the solicitor has to put together the contract pack and within that contract pack, there's prescribed documents such as planning documents, the, 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 the searches that we would do as acting for buyers, the seller's solicitor has to have that ready. And you pretty much go straight into an exchange. That's why you can, you can get the transactions moving a lot quicker over there because the packs are already, the contracts are already together. If you're interested in a property, the estate agent will issue you a contract. You give that to your, your solicitor and they they have a look at it and then then you exchange and then you do your due diligence which is a little bit the other way around i do sort of like the idea of that rather than us sort of sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting for searches to come through um other than that i mean the mechanics are slightly different but pretty much it's the same <laughs> that's why i can practice in both jurisdictions so so claire can you ever see a time where there'll be a radical overhaul of the way properties are bought and sold in the UK when it comes to uh, their legals? No. <laughs> this has been, this, this sort of talks about changing things and improving things have been sort of knocking around for decades. And things are tried, but there's, it, there's a lot of resistance to change uh, within the property industry. And that, that will come from estate agents, that will come from solicitors. You know, it, it can come from sellers and buyers themselves. Um, so technology might sort of change things a little bit. For, in, in terms of improving, unless there's a major overhaul, as I said, so unless you sort of start looking at things like what is making, or what creates the, the, the amount of fall-throughs in the transactions that we have in this country, and making some radical changes. I'm really not sure where else, you know, improvements can be made. Tweak, you can tweak little bits here, you can tweak little bits there. But overall, the 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 setup that we have here, um, I can't I just can't see major changes happening, to be perfectly honest. Maybe uh one area that that could that we could uh, in, improve on, I think, is maybe um Getting our regulators to look at, we refer to them as factory conveyancing firms. Um, these sorts of firms, uh, they're sort of, you know, pile up the work. So it's it's, qual it's quantity over quality. 
I don't sort of want to cast aspersions. Some, you know, um, unqualified conveyances. They're not actually conveyances because it's not qualified. Some do a fantastic job. You know, they've been in the job for 15, 20 years, whatever. They're, they're doing a great job. But a lot of these these sort of factory conveyancing firms bring in young, cheap, unqualified staff. They set them in teams, and it it slows transactions down. I, I mean, I. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard many a solicitor and, and conveyancer complaining about having these firms on the other side of the transaction. It's um, you know, it, it's it's painful. Basically, you can't you, you know you can't get hold of who you need to get hold of. You know, your inquiries are being dished out amongst you know potentially ten people. You know, here's here's a couple few, here's a couple few. So they're all being answered at different times, and that sort of thing. You know, it's just not efficient. It, it's not it's not great for um you know, either party involved in transaction. And when, when you've got, even if you're only one of those in a chain of transactions, it, it, it can, well, it, it can be just you know, tragic and detrimental to the, to the whole chain, basically. Then you've got mortgage, mortgages expiring and you, you need to push. Um, and it, it's difficult to, just makes it very difficult when you, you haven't got any particular person who is responsible for a matter that you can contact. I'm happy. You have to stop me because I could go on about this, but <laughs> it's the bane. It's the bane of all our lives. The problem with it is, is that the likes of me, well, and employed sisters in firms, we can warn people about using these types of, of factory firms, but buyers and sellers will be, they'll often be lured in by the low fees. And I, I think that, you know, when you're dealing with what is likely to be the most expensive asset and the most expensive transaction, you know, the highest value transaction you'll ever be involved in, why you would risk all of that by not ensuring that you, you're getting a good quality and a good standard of, of uh, legal knowledge and, and expertise um, is, is actually quite beyond me. But, you know, I, I mean... I think it's the same as you know, buyers who don't want to have surveys done. Again, it, it astounds me, but it does happen. You know, I've got clients at the moment who are refusing to have surveys done. Yeah, the public are an intrinsic part of these transactions. So are we getting too much wrong in the way we interact with conveyances? Yes, I I think so. I think I, I, I just... I, I might sound like I'm sort of, you know, self-interested here, but I don't think that this is um, necessarily an area where you should be sort of pitting quotes against each other. I think that you should either talk or engage by email, find out about, the, you know, who you will be dealing with in these transactions. And I, so what what these firms do is they they advertise a lot. They get onto a lot of these. You know, comparison websites. You won't find really any of the the, the better firms, I'd say, on these sites. So people who have, who let's say first time buyers who may, might not have a lot of money to spend. But again, I I think that they sh- that there should be sort of better warning systems in place for well, yes, you they might you might be being quoted. Not, I saw I saw one recently, ninety nine pounds for the legal fees on a, a purchase. What wasn't and originally revealed was it was there was a, a two hundred and fifty pound fee for setting up the file that which was quite interesting yeah so i just i yeah i think that um there should be a little bit more education and and, and maybe agents um and and uh, so as we you know we should work a little bit 
closer together you know, in, in educating our, our clients um, as to how to go about choosing a, a conveyancer. And I've I've read I've read some sort of advice um, you know websites and and one of the things that does come up is about you know getting quotes and, and there's nothing wrong with getting a few quotes but just be very careful if one if one is outlandishly low there's there's going to be a reason. Sorry to mention the R word, Claire. Renovation. You're not its biggest fan, I know, but surely the fact that you've worked on properties yourself it must give you another useful perspective in the job you do. Good question. He, yes, I actually, I actually think working as a buying agent has probably offered more assistance in understanding how various different people are. Because I know, you know, when I've sort of bought and sold and and what have you, I've always done it with being a lawyer. So I, I know what to expect. I know what to ask. I know, you know, when to give my my conveyancer a nudge. It's quite interesting, you know, when you're working with lots of different people and people approach the, this process differently. When they're in it, they, they react differently. I, you know, I, I actually found working more sort of closely with buyers um, more eye-opening and, and sort of gave me an understanding of when you need to hold the hand of a client, let's say, um, you know, other clients, uh, you know, I, I do have a couple at the moment who literally read everything, which is quite unusual, and will raise questions that no other client's ever raised about matters that, you know, no, nobody else seems to worry about. So everybody is different. And I, I think that, that working with lots of people has helped, you know, and standing back from the conveyancing of it and, and noticing more behaviors rather than processes. But no, I don't like renovating. And that's a personal thing. Every- because I can't stand the mess. I always seem to be renovating in winter and it's cold and dirty and just oh, awful. Right. Claire says never renovate in winter. <laughs> renovate in winter. Only renovate in sunny climes when somebody else is making the tea and bringing you biscuits and cake, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say are the main challenges in, in conveyancing at the moment and kind of going forward? Well, specifically, with the the... the New um, provisions that have just come into force in January uh, are just causing absolute mayhem. And this is all, um, this is sort of an extension of, uh, if you recall, the the Building Safety Act uh, brought in the the cladding and uh, structural defect and buildings over 18 metres. And there have been some new provisions that have been brought in and um, a number of lenders um, have put some very onerous responsibilities onto conveyances. Um, a lot of conveyances at the moment are actually refusing to work on leasehold um, matters. I'm not. I will work on them, but there's a few lenders I won't work with just because of the the exposure to risk. And um, so I think that's that's possibly... And the, the problem with it is, is that nobody... It, not everything is in force yet. And um, the act itself isn't clear on a number of sort of major issues, you know, right down to sort of where does 11 metres start? Is a basement included in, in one of the five stories? Is, you know, so they're, they're, it, this, it's so grey that, that a, a lot of conveyances are very nervous about touching leaseholds. So I think that's that's one of the main challenges from... A sort of a practitioner's point of view at the moment. Um, 
and uh, and well, we're just sort of hoping. I mean, there's there's more to sort of be released, more to come into force, but just just hoping that there's uh, a little bit more qualification from our point of view, <laughs> but that we can you know we can give proper advice and and convey the titles um, you know properly and with confidence. Thanks ever so much, Claire. That's Claire Russell Lato of Taylor Rose and Domus Holmes. Wherever you get your podcasts, and please feel free to leave us a review, a rating. Uh, we'd be most uh, appreciative of that. This is The Right Move, the property podcast with Simo and JP. Now, one thing that we will be delving into very shortly that we haven't yet is an article that we've seen on Property Industry I about the online agency Strike. They have some financial issues, uh, which is something of an understatement, and yet still they have an offer on the table for purple bricks. This is an astonishing story, and we are about to look into it. The UK Residential Market Survey, uh, something we're going to look at uh, right now, though, this is something used by all the credible bodies, so the IMF, uh, the government, lots of others, to assess current and future conditions in sales and lettings, and Charlie really rates it, and so do you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would. I mean, I am a contributor to the RICS uh, market, residential market survey, every month, uh, as are a whole host of RICS members across the UK. And I'm not only an associate member of the RICS, I am also a registered valuer with the RICS, which... I think gives me some fairly credible insight into the current market conditions. And I think it is something that Charlie and I do talk about regularly um, and, 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 and sort of impress on, on everybody that what we see at the coalface is so important to impart. I don't like really knocking other estate agents where I can avoid it because we're all in business to, to make money and to sell properties for our, our clients. But there are far too many people, and as Charlie calls it, it's a state agent guff that's out there telling people that the property market is still booming. And categorically, guys, it ain't really still booming. So the RICS Residential Market Survey is now being put on the pedestal, really. As Charlie and I spoke about as well, only just, as I said the, earlier on, you know, we, we spoke the other day. Nationwide and Halifax, they have their own house price index. I have to be honest, it's very much led by the transactional uh, side of things in relation to mortgages and, 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 and lending and, and how that opens up. And it's not necessarily the coal fetch. So that data can be six months out of date because it's all based on mortgage offers. Well, mortgage offers and then transactions fail or it's based on completed transactions well i'm actually seeing what is going on at the front end of a um, sales process as opposed to the back end uh, so i think our, the rics survey is so fresh when it's put out there by various people you know it's 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 charters of heirs who are registered valuers mm -hmm. like me or agents selling you know as as i am or, or or lettings and we all put this data together and it's very localized whereas you know nationwide for example they do a lot in the south of the country because that's where they're based and halifax do a lot more in the north of the country because that's where their sort of tr traditional heartland is but the rocs survey is a whole national 
piece of um, work every month. Mm. Chief economist at the RACS, he puts it out and they put it together in, in his team and then they publish those results. I am very passionate about it, like I am about being a member of the RICS or an associate member of the RICS. And um, I am very passionate that the professionalism that that brings. And this survey does show everybody, as, as I've said, the immediate coalface. As an outsider, I can say this, it's got integrity written all over it because uh, RICS professionals, as you say, uh, contribute to it. It also equates to CPD, doesn't it? Con- continuing professional development. Therefore that person then becomes even more rounded as a professional and more respected. So, you know, brilliant. I think it's a, it's incredibly credible uh, with lots of amounts of, of cachet all round. We'll, we'll make the point before bringing Charlie's opinion piece Charlie says on about the uh, the market survey, what his thoughts on the indices. He, he had to record, but in an unusual environment this time, he's fairly quiet, isn't he? He sounds like one of those snooker commentators that, you know, very conscious of other people around. And is he going for the pink... Well, yes, Charlie was off to Singapore, so uh, Charlie uh, very kindly managed to get our Charlie Says piece to us from, uh, well, whether it was the departure lounge or whether it was actually from his seat on a 747 or whatever they fly to Singapore these days. But uh, no, really appreciate Charlie doing this um, with us, and uh, it's really good to have him on us. Let's uh, let's run that uh, now, show JP. Right. Let's uh, cross now to seat seven F. Peanuts, anyone? Charlie says. Charlie says. Charlie The RICS House Index, and why it's my favourite of all the available indices, is because there's two reasons. First of all, of all of the available indices, is the most timely because they report on house price transactions just agreed in the last month and the last three months and they report on what they're expecting in the next three months and it's regional and it's done by people who actually are professionally qualified to value properties for a living it is more timely than any of the other indices and because it's an index or a survey about sentiment rather than actual precise values it's also more useful than national average house prices because a national average house price is of no use to anyone whatsoever and the RICS survey is made up of regionals and, and the, the individuals who are out there day in, day out, valuing properties and selling properties and letting properties for a living. And they're qualified to do so. And they're the only ones qualified to do so. And both Goldman Sachs and the Financial Times say that the RICS monthly housing survey is the most reliable leading indicator of house prices of any available. Now, what are the other indices? So we've got the land registry. Well, that's great, but it's very much at least in the best of times, is three months in arrears, and currently we're talking about five or six months behind. Not only that, having claimed that they include 40% of transactions in each recent house price survey, the most recent house price reports from the land registry have included just 16% of transactions. But unlike the Halifax and Nationwide, they are 16% of all transactions, not just mortgage transactions. And they are, in fact, the completed transaction price, whereas the Nationwide and Halifax are both the intended completion price, but that because they're based on mortgage approvals, not completions, there can be A, a renegotiation, or B, a fall-through, uh, affecting both Halifax and Nationwide. So, there you have it. My reasons why the RICS house price survey is the most useful. You're with the right move. Subscribe to us now on all major podcast apps. Uh, our thanks to a, I guess, a mile high, Charlie says, in a manner of speaking. Let's, um... <laughs> don't... don't. 
let's not even go. Let's turn our attention to this. This is about Strike. Strike, the online agency, as I say, you know, kind of crude description on a par, I, I suppose, with the likes of Global Bricks. Now, Strike report further losses, big financial losses, poor financials uh, on this simo. But still their offer for Purple Bricks remains on the table. This is like wading through treacle. What, what does this mean for the, the sector, for the public? I mean, it's how can they succeed with this offer in the position they're in? Well, frankly, I think a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. That's my honest precy of it. You can't keep recruiting. I mean, doubling strike 154 employees in 21 to 367 in 22. You know, more than double. Directors' remuneration's gone up, uh, so they're pulling more out of it. But uh, the losses have gone from fifty-four million pounds in twenty-one mm. to a, a an absolutely whopping seventy-two and a half million, and they still have a, a sixteen million loan from investors at a twelve percent interest rate. What is going on? And how on earth? Can they be allowed to buy another failing business? It's nuts, I think. I posted this on on LinkedIn and I just put, wow, just wow. I'm certainly no insolvency practitioner, but is this not an instance that a company, a business is effectively operating whilst insolvent? Yeah, and trying to be even more so. I mean, as you say, um, you're not an insolvency practitioner, nor am I. Maybe we should get somebody on to have a chat yeah. about this, yeah. really, and just see, see what it is, because... Funny enough, you know, I I cannot genuinely believe that these these businesses and they don't have a market share, JP. They do not have any market share. You know, we are local agents are there, and it costs money to sell a property. Yeah. This proves it absolutely. Lock, stock, and two barrels. That is why fees are charged by estate agents because it costs us to sell property, not just in our time, but every angle. You know, as I've quite openly said in previously, it costs me in excess of £15,000 a year just to advertise on Rightmove. That's a nearly an employee, yeah. you know. Yeah. It is nuts what it costs to sell houses. And this proves that you can't just offer a re-service and hope that you're going to make money out of referrals exactly the strike model and as i say uh, you cannot run a business like that it and take half a million pounds a year right for your directors yeah yeah for your ferrari or your, or your maserati it's just yeah crazy stuff isn't it really and let's be honest purple bricks has hardly ever had a half decent uh, reputation let a good one it's only going to get worse and both these brands kind of have a big flashing neon sign around them saying we could probably fall over pretty soon, steer clear. I think you're right, absolutely. And is this just sort of some ego trip of somebody that feels that, yeah, okay, let's just go and buy a business that is failing and hope that we're going to turn two businesses around because they'll get together and do something, but... Mm. Why would you want two competing? I don't understand why a, a, a board of directors would want two competing online brands there that are going to be literally fishing in the same pond. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I just, 
really baffled. I'm more baffled now after <laughs> the, the latest revelation of strikes losses. Mm. But I was baffled in the first place about strike buying purple bricks. Do you know what the irony is? They've been given more time to come up with an increased offer. Well, how can they increase an offer? Is they've got all of these loans from investors. I mean, if you're an investor, like you say, there's got to be a big sign around it saying steer clear. Yeah, yeah. There's a comment here on the article that where we've picked this up from. In fact, I think I picked it up from, I, I picked it up from Mark Schoffman as well, but I think the one we're looking at, Mark De Silva at Property Industry I has highlighted, but somebody's commented, staggering, isn't it? They are both doomed. I mean, the interest alone on the recent borrowing is two million a year. This, without all other debts, I know us mere high street agents are individually turning over much smaller figures, but we make a profit after all costs and wages. How on earth can investors not see these business models are completely flawed and failing rapidly? 12% might seem a good rate, but only if you get paid and eventually get your original investment back. Just unbelievable stupidity. And then another one here. It's a crazy world that simp I simply cannot fathom. Purple bricks are failing and struggling, reporting 25 million of losses, an almost worthless business and desperate to sell up, in fact, a decade of losses. Yet Strike, who have folded previously, who make a 54 million pound loss, followed by another, well, it's not another 72 million, by the way, but they, that's what they've written, followed by another 72 million loss, think they can do it better. But hey, they think they could stay trading another year. And their blind folded investors keep writing checks without questioning leadership. Worse still, they are paying an increasing salary for losses. Absolutely. It is just totally, totally off its face. Yeah. And uh, I guarantee you that uh, somebody right at the top of the food chain will walk away from all these eye watering, these vast losses with their private yacht and the 12 bedroom mansion. So weird stuff and i'm sure one day fairly soon like you say we'll have somebody uh, on this podcast who can explain the wonderful dirt world of massive debt now uh, before we go quick word about something uh, i i think it's brilliant i think it's really good the guild of property professionals who of course uh, ian came on from the guild uh, recently to the podcast they've got a facebook page you don't have to be uh, you know a guild member you don't have to be in the, even in the industry in the sector to like their page the guild of property professionals and on there you can access their articles, there's blogs and other really uh, eye-opening stuff, uh, like the one I saw, I think it's the most recent as of time of recording this, called How to Transform Your Bedroom on a Budget. So it's clever stuff, cost-effective stuff to to give a bedroom a, a, a makeover. So, that you know, they're, they're talented guys, aren't they, the Guild? Really good. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it is interesting that, you know, you can do certain things on a budget mm. to make things sell. Other agents will back me up on this that you know the number of times we get asked about what should we do to this house to, to make it sell better i mean you know frankly our, our stock answer generally is nothing because whatever you do do somebody else is going to rip it out and start again um but uh you know on a budget uh actually if you're only going to spend a few quid to freshen something up then yes it's worth it don't tidy it up too much though because we won't want to then you won't want us to sell your house then um but no absolutely it great little articles that the guilds put out and when uh, ian came on about the benefits of 
agents being members of the guild and uh, you know i'm very proud to be one of those um in in two locations and um i think the added benefits and the added marketing that it gives us like this is is, is really is really interesting so uh yeah thumbs up to the guild top tips and uh yeah very happy to see that yeah yeah and like i say there's there's no sort of uh, membership no secret password code access whatever to that facebook page the guild of property professionals anybody can have a look anybody can learn from that and uh, i strongly urge you to do so uh Sima, thank you to uh, claire uh, russell Lato, of course to charlie on 7f and to you obviously oh thanks jp yeah really appreciate that always a pleasure never a chore 10-4 jp <laughs>